There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. The Smash Broadway musical Wicked comes to the Kennedy Center tomorrow through January 22nd in Washington, D.C. I spoke to actor Michael Genet about the social commentary between Elphaba and Galinda, as well as his own journey from growing up in Washington, D.C. to writing She Hate Me for Spike Lee. Hi, I'm Michael Genet, and I play Dr. Doman in Wicked. And it's Wicked, the musical, the smash Broadway musical. Everybody knows it at this point. Um, And it's coming to the Kennedy Center December 8th through January 22nd, the whole holiday season. Hey, thanks so much for joining us. It's my pleasure, man. Thanks for having me. All right. So in case somehow, you know, in case somehow, um, you know, people missed it or didn't see it on Broadway. I mean, everyone's at least seen The Wizard of Oz. So <laughs> tell us how uh, this is sort of, a, I don't want to say alternate take, but, you know, an expanded take on, on the, the story of The Wicked Witch. Tell, give us a basic sort of premise. Well, um, it is based on The Wizard of Oz, as you said. And what they what the creatives did here is they, they flipped it to take us, uh, I guess the analogy would be that we go behind the scenes to find out how uh Glenda the good witch and the wicked witch of the the west became who they they are and so uh wicked the musical takes place when they meet uh at school uh when they're much much younger and um obviously uh Elphaba who would be the wicked witch of the west in in the wizard of oz Elphaba you know, when she comes to the school, she's green. She's literally green from head to toe. And Galinda, who is at, who actually at that time is so pompous and full of herself, pronounces her name bougie bougie as Galinda. Oh, Galinda. You have to emphasize right. the ga. You have to emphasize the ga. <laughs> and of course, everyone at the school, when they see Galinda, they want to be her best friend because she's the it girl. She's she's she's, you know. She's the smart, smart one in the class. She's the popular one. And she's the mean wants, girl. Yeah, she's the mean girl. And everyone wants to be in her circle. And then when when Elphaba shows up, they're all petrified because they look at her and they think she's some, you know, abnormal monster or something. And they try to stay as far away from her as possible. But as fate would have it, uh, the school ends up making uh, Elphaba and Gal- share a room with Galinda. And, and Galinda actually had she comes from a richy bougie family her family had had, had established a, a single single suite for herself <laughs> at school <laughs> but Elphaba gets assigned because they didn't have any more space so Elphaba gets put into the room with with galinda and they have an oil and water relationship up front 
I mean, Elphaba is as sweet as can be and it's open and, 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 uh, you know, nurturing and, you know, warm as, as anyone could ever hope for a person to be. But, uh, somehow the two of them form this, this wonderful friendship and it blossoms into this thing that travels through the, the, the rest of their lives. And, and it touches upon all the bases of what we're dealing with in society today of inclusion versus exclusion, uh, the people who are popular for no other reason than they're popular. I won't call out any names who that is. Uh, <laughs> I think the, we know what you're going for. <laughs> the people who have some real skill because Elphaba comes in and she's got this real skill set that she doesn't even know how to how to manage at this point, but she's got this real skill for magic. It just it just emanates from her body. And, you know, Galinda wants to be in the class where she hones a magical skill, but she doesn't really have any kind of talent. But but Elphaba is it just it just oozes from her, and so they form formulate this 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 relationship, and we see all the machinations of what's going on in our world today. Of uh, I mean, Elphaba would be the immigrant, if you will, and the quote unquote as the evil forces would like to paint as quote the other and yeah the, exactly the other exactly and and the unwanted and the one to be shunned and and but she turns out to be this this truly magnanimous soul and so the the guy who is the mirror equivalent fiero of of galinda he's so narcissistic and so full of himself but he's also so handsome and gorgeous <laughs> uh, initially he it looks like he and galinda because they are two peas in a pod are going to end up being together but something happens between him and Elphaba. And she makes him open his eyes. She, she's not even trying to make him, but her her very being makes him open his eyes and realizes, wow, he's seeing a beauty in her that he really didn't even, didn't even know existed. And the relationship between them blossoms into this really pure love affair um, that he's willing to let himself be transformed uh, because he loves her so, so deeply. And the thing between Elphaba and Dr. Dilliman is that Dr. Dilliman is the is is like her. He's the only animal on the faculty. He's a professor at the school. He's like a goat. It's like a goat costume, I think. He's a goat. Yeah, he, yeah. he's the goat. He you is, are the goat. <laughs> I am the goat. But he's the only one uh, animal on the faculty now because they've been they've been phasing out all the animals because the animals are different and they don't want different under their sky. And he, critical animal theory. Oh, we can't exactly. teach that in our schools. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and he sees he sees the storm clouds blowing in. He knows that change is is upon us mm -hmm. at 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 uh, in in at Shiz, which Shiz University, which is the school they go to. And he's trying to sound the alarm, and he finds an ally in Alphabet because she understands the importance of being accepted when one is different and not shunning people who are different so they form this alliance to the point where he starts to confide in her what he sees is going on and she realizes oh my god something really dangerous is afloat and then he gets axed they 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 wipe him off the map they just violently escort him off the premises mm. uh curtail his ability to teach which they've done with animals throughout the the kingdom 
And so he he just up and disappears. And so she's left to carry the burden of trying to elevate this whole idea of inclusion and, you know, acceptance. Man, well, I mean, come on. What you just laid out and the ties to, you know, social commentary, politics, everything to present day, it, it is it is a powerful piece of work, everything you just said. Um, and it's... Uh, to think that it was, you know, the musical was, gosh, going on 20 years. It was 2003. Um, that's that's wild. It was eerily prescient. Uh, or I guess we've been you know, dealing with these issues for a while. <laughs> yeah, that's that's very that's that's very very uh, you know wise of you to to realize that. And I think most people when they come because they're not expecting that, especially the adults. If they come, they think, okay, we're coming to see this, you know, fun musicals to take off on the Wizard of Oz, blah, blah, blah. And then they go home after they see it and they go to their jobs the next day or they sit around the dinner table, the breakfast table the next morning, whatever. And they end up talking about, wait a minute, this stuff was was talking about issues that are so relevant to everything that's going on, not only in America, but all across the, the, the globe today. Uh, that's the brilliance of the piece. I don't know if the creatives knew when they were writing this, that this is what they were going to have on their hands. But the reason that this musical continues to, to live and not only live, thrive, is because yes, it is a beautiful piece of work in musical theater, but it is also this social commentary that goes deeper than anyone could ever imagine being in, a, in an American musical. Uh, and that's what makes it live. So um, parents, are bringing their little girls. The little girls are five, seven, 10 years old. They're blown away by the fairy tale. They grow up to be teenagers. They come back again. They grow up to be parents themselves. They bring their little girls. They bring their little boys. And that's why this thing continues to go. When I, I did it on Broadway in 2016, 2017. In the same role or? The same role. Awesome. And um, I did it with the late great Peter Scolari, who, you know, was bosom buddies with Tom Hanks. I mean, he was in every TV show. He won he won the Emmy while we were doing the show for playing um the father on on what was it Girls on HBO. Wow. And and uh just this great guy. So I had I was in with this amazing group of of castmates on Broadway and I asked the producer then and I said, because when we when we were doing it on Broadway, I think we hit the did we hit the we hit the 13 or 14 year mark and we and it just crossed like a billion dollars in revenue while we were <laughs> doing the show then and i asked him i said so how long do you think this this is going to make it and he looked at me and said michael honestly i think we might be able to make 30 and i looked at him and i was just like floored i was like whoa i'm telling you right now they're gonna blow past 30 the show's <laughs> not going anywhere because it is so as you said prescient it's so yeah. relevant and, and you've said a bit. You said the billion dollar threshold. I'm pretty sure, at least at the time, I think the Phantom of the Opera and the Lion King were the only other ones to do. It. Like Wicked is in that elite company because it is. Con it and and like you said, it will continue to blow past thirty, and it's going to go on forever, as far as I'm I concerned. Mean, I think about it, man. It's the equivalent of the Ten Commandments on television. It's equivalent right. of for life it's equivalent of of the Wizard of Oz. Oz. <laughs> you so know what I mean? Every every year those things roll out. Yeah. And families make plans. OK, Ten Commandments is coming on at Easter time. We're going to sit down and watch. It's a wonderful life comes on at Thanksgiving and Christmas time. We're going to watch and Wizard of Oz comes on. You 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 know, now now we don't have to worry about making a plan because everybody has DVDs and, and Blu-rays yeah. and all that stuff they can watch whenever they want. But it's still 
uh, a go-to event for families to 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 watch multiple times a year. This show is like that, yep. except that it's on stage. And that's why, and because it is with decade after decade after decade of what happens social and politically in this country and throughout the world, somehow I don't know, I can't, if I could figure it out, man, I swear to goodness, I would I would be working on something right now with that formula. But oh, we bottle up it, and sell that, man. <laughs> exactly. Somehow they have tapped into the elements that are in this show that continue to be relevant every decade that rolls around. It is just an amazing piece of work. <laughs> That's all Absolutely. I and and yeah, and and it, uh, it's so well said. And I, I do want to mention that, I mean, we mentioned it was 2003 was the musical, but it was based on a book from 95, uh, Gregory Maguire's novel, Wicked the Life and Times of the Wicked Witch of the West. So it, it's even more prescient when you consider it was written originally in the mid 90s. Yeah, he, he came to see the show and we, we, we met him. He came to see us in Boston and we got to hang out with him. Cool. That's really, really cool. Yeah. And I remember, um, so I just think it's kind of cool, you know, as we're sort of charting the history of all this stuff. Um, I remember a few years, even before that back, you know, back when I was in school, I think in like 89, there was this thing called the true story of the three little pigs and it spun it, um, from the, from the perspective of the big bad wolf. And then you get wicked to tell it from the perspective of the wicked, witch of the West and make her a sympathetic, the the protagonist sort of flip it. And then of course, after that, you got Shrek and all that's fractured fairy tales galore. Um, but this, uh, why do you think it is around that time, you know, night? 90s early 2000s that you think we do you think it's just sort of coincided with society in general we're starting to question everything we've been been told right down to the founding fathers etc etc now statues whatever uh do you think we as a society are just more open to say you know what maybe maybe bad guys weren't so bad maybe the good guys weren't always so good you know do you think it's just us at the turn of the millennium questioning everything now well i think I think there is a curiosity, a, a really healthy, beautiful curiosity. Thank God it exists, I think. Right. In the human human psyche. I don't think it's just an American phenomenon. I think it's a worldwide phenomenon um, where we want to find the the story behind the legend. Right. I, I got hired uh, by the great and wonderful Harry Belafonte to write a film for him. This was back in 93. No way, Harry, the Harry Belafonte. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was a a, a story. I won't call it out now, uh, the, the name of it, but it was a story based on this legend that people had been trying to tell for like 30, 40 years. Harry had been trying at that point when he hired me, he'd been trying. Oh, come like, on. What's the legend? I, I got to know. Well, it, was story, it was the story of Stagger Lee. There, there's a, there's a, there's these, what's called these Negro toasts. Negro toasts are things that, People down in the Mississippi Delta, they still do it to this day, the best of my best of my knowledge. They, they when they when they get their paychecks at the end of the week, they'll go to a juke joint just to celebrate, have a drink or two. And sometimes, even now, today, they will it, one of someone in the group will get up and do one of the toasts. And the most famous, there's like Shining the Signifying Monkey, Jack Johnson and the Sinking of the Titanic. And, and there's about six or eight of them. And the most, but the most famous of, of the toast has always been Stagger Lee. There was that song in the '60s, Stagger Lee went to the, it, it, you know. So there's this there's this toast called Stagger Lee, and it's about the baddest brother on the planet, black man on the planet, and all he and all he did was you know violently abuse women and and kill cops. <laughs> that's that's basically the toast, but it's done in this poetic thing. And so Harry 
when he hired me, he said, what we have to find is the story behind the legend because no audience is going to want to sit through five, more than five minutes of a story about a bad dude who's just abusing women and killing law enforcement. We got to find out the story of how he became who the legend says, the myth says he is, and then put the truth out there. And when we, and that was a really difficult task, but when we found it, we found this incredible story to tell. And I think the same thing applies with the American and, and worldwide public psyche is that when they see a, a myth or a legend, like, you know, like the myth of, of Mike Tyson, you know, we can sit here and say, okay, Mike Tyson, baddest dude, knocks people out in 60 seconds, blah, blah, Bites blah. Bites ears off, et cetera. The myth, yeah. the myth, the bigger, but, larger but, than life But stuff. the interesting yeah. story about Mike is to go behind and find out who Mike really was from the time he was born, his his hardships, the, his 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 small victories, you know, the right. moments when he when he found tender in his life. Custom Customata becoming a father figure, you know, exactly. all that stuff. Exactly. So that's the kind of stuff that draws people in. And I think that's why there's the in part, there's such a, a love affair with stories like Wicked, because we pull back the curtain, as they say. It don't <laughs> pay no, no pay attention to the man behind the curtain. Exactly. In this, in, case, in this case, they want you. We want you to pay attention to the man behind the curtain because the man behind the curtain is telling you the real story of not what you thought you knew, but what really went down. And right. most of the time, that's infinitely more interesting than the myth itself. I agree entirely, and it reminds me of uh, uh, um, remember that remember that John Ford movie, Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, and they say oh, yeah. when the le when the right. legend becomes fact, print the legend. Well, yeah. so I mean it, that was a genius commentary in the '60s, but um, but now now I feel like we're like okay, we printed the legend for so long, but now let's peel it back and see if the legend is real. Let's find the truth and the kernels of truth underneath the legend and the myth we've been told all this long. You know what I mean? Like I feel like that that's where we are at least in our in culture and society now. Um, well, I mean, this is so fascinating. I, I could talk forever about the themes and the story on and all of that, but. Uh, we'd be remiss if we don't go into some of the musical numbers because, of course, yes, it has all this depth, but then there's also the great show tune type stuff, too. So uh, it, it works on both levels. So remind us some of the famous, famous uh, musical numbers that will be echoing in our, our heads as we... Oh, don't, don't do that to me, man. I, <laughs> I mean, I will, I will say, because, I mean, I'm going to fail if I mean, if I, if I got to call out all the titles. Well, you don't have to, but uh, how about Defying Gravity is the really Defying big gravity, one. Defying Gravity will, you know, it. it I'm in my dressing room when Defying Gravity goes on, and, and I'm, I always listen at the very end. I'm, I'm listening to the whole song, but I always listen at the very end because at the very end, when she gets to the very end of Defying Gravity, there's this just roar throughout yeah. the audience because it's just visually stunning with her flying in the air. On the broom, and, uh, yeah. Yeah, and here's a, here's, a, here's a funny story. It's not wasn't funny at the time um, when we were doing it on Broadway. This couple came in. I forget they came in from the Midwest somewhere, and they came in to New York specifically to see Wicked. Wow! And during the show, let's pretend they were from Kansas. Well, it was it was somewhere in that in that area. It was, it <laughs> They're not Kansas like anymore. They this is yeah. Broadway. And they came in, and they were they were an older couple. Uh, you know, they were probably in their sixties, I guess. So. And some the person behind them in the seats behind them got ill and got ill all over them. Like during the show, like during the show. And of course, I mean, really just threw up all over them. Oh and my so gosh. Wicked, the company of Wicked, 
immediately escorted them backstage, took their clothes, washed their clothes, kept them backstage, washed their clothes and were dry the clothes. And while they were backstage having their clothes washed, they 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 brought them up to our dressing rooms where me and Peter Scalari were were off were weren't on stage at that time. And Peter Scalari loved to do magic tricks and he was really, really good. So to entertain this couple, because you know, we were trying to make sure that they number one, they didn't want to sue us. <laughs> <laughs> but also that, you know, they they had their 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 trip, you know, just terribly interrupted by this you know, accident, a person just got sick. Oh uh, we wanted to make them as comfortable as possible. So I was, in, I took them into Peter's dressing room. I said, Peter, can you do some magic? Show them it. So he was doing magic tricks for them, but and they were doing, they were fascinated. Well, oh my God. And we were standing, and I was still in my, my goat makeup, you know, <laughs> and Peter's the wizard, the wizard. So they're, they're in the dressing room. Wow, we're in the, wizard, in the dressing room with the wizard and, and Dr. Dillman. Okay. And so I said, well, look, and the first act was coming to an end. I said, you want to go, let me take you downstairs so you can see how defying gravity actually, actually happens from the backstage view. And I'm not going to give it away for the audience, but I took them backstage in the wings. So when Elphaba was singing Defying Gravity and she started flying, they could see how on Broadway that trick is actually done. And they and because we did that for them, they were so in love with the fact that we showed them such kindness and such courtesy. They wrote this amazing thank you letter and they they they, they singled out Peter and I for being so gracious to to them, but they were just really complimentary of Wicked, the company, the show, and they vowed that they were coming back, and they did come back like a month and a half later. They came back to the show because they because we treated them so well. That is such a great story. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, and well, it, it's I'm sorry they got sick, but I'm glad in the end it, <laughs> they, yeah. they got to see yeah. the behind the scenes. That's so I mean, it is. I saw it on Broadway and it, it, it is. It is just a, it's an amazing moment with the flying around on the broom. And the song itself, too, is beautiful. I mean, there's there's a reason she went on to sing Let It Go and Frozen and all. You know what I mean, like that's that right, exactly, that exactly. song is amazing. Um, yeah. What are some other I mean, I guess Galinda's big one is Papu. Popular, um, that talk about that song really quick. I mean, that really sort of shows her bougie side, I guess. Popular is is this you know comic tour de force uh, for Galinda when she's trying to give Elphaba this you know physical makeover. Uh, number one with her hair and and how she dresses and everything, and it's just this really delightful, really really funny uh, song that that Galinda gets to sing. But it's a it's Elphaba doesn't sing in it, but it's it's actually a duet between the two of them because Elphaba is like the straight man in in an Abbott and Costello routine. Here is basically what it is, <laughs> and it's just and the audience just you know they're already in love with Galinda. But what it does is it really humanizes Galinda and takes her out of the mean girl category because the audience then sees oh she's really you know this this wonderful human being in her own right and she's willing to extend herself to help the girl who is not accepted become accepted and be part of part of the circle. And that's when Glenda has her, that's like her plot point in the show That's when she makes her, her character change, she, be, she becomes not this selfish being, but this, this altruistic being who is there to, you know, and she still does it in her, you know, look at me, look at me fashion, but for her, it's a big, big deal and a big, big change. And it's a wonderful moment in the show. Oh, absolutely. And I guess maybe time for let's hit one more musical number, uh, the, sort of towards the end, the closing of the show, uh, that song for good. 
Um, oh, oh my God. It, well, it is. And the line that always echoes with me is who can say if I've been changed for the better, but because I knew you, and then she chimes in because I knew you, <laughs> I've been yeah. changed for good. That, um, song, that song is so powerful. We came, we came back to our hotel. This was last week, actually. We came back. It was me and two of the other cats in the ensemble. We, we just happened to come into the hotel together. We got to the, over by the elevators, and there was this couple standing at the elevator, and they had just come from seeing The Lion King, which is playing down the street from where we are right now, mm-hmm. at the Palace Theater. And here, I'm in Chicago right now. And, um, and they said, we, were, you, were you guys in, we, we just saw Lion King. Were you in Lion? We said, no, 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 we're in Wicked. She said, oh, my God. I saw Wicked last week. Oh my God, I've been changed for good. And she kept saying, saying, I've been, she kept saying, I've been changed for good. No, really, I've been changed for good. And we were just like, it was so cute and adorable. That song, that's what she took from the Mm. show. That lyric from that song. And it just kept pouring out. She she must have said, I've been changed for good 10 times as we got on the elevator and the door closed. And she was still in the lobby, just pacing. I've been changed for good. Just, <laughs> it was it was so beautiful. The power of Stephen Schwartz, man. Wow. It, that the, the songbook is just, it really is. It's incredible. It's some of the best Broadway music ever. I mean, I, I'm not ashamed to say it. I know when people throw out, you know, all time stuff, it's whatever. But I mean, it, it is at this point. I mean, come on. It's. You know, we can call it a classic now. It's almost 20 years. Oh, my God. Yeah, well, and Stephen Schwartz is an icon. Stephen, yeah. Stephen was here. He was here, what, three weeks ago? Two two weeks ago, three weeks ago, he was here. Yeah. And Godspell, Pippin. I mean, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, and I got to tell you, man, he's still a tour de force. He looks like he's, you know, I don't even know how old Stephen is at this point, but he looks like 74. he's 74. He looks like if he told you he was in his 50s, you wouldn't bat an eye. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, exactly. he, he's in great shape, man. It it well that that's great that's great to hear. But you know, I I think probably because you know the being gra- like yourself grappling with this. Uh, I can tell you're a deep thinker in all the profound conversations we're having. But I think that keeps you young. It keeps you, you know, you're not setting. You know, you don't settle. You, it keeps us keeps us keep the mind going. You know what I mean? I'm well, sure. Stephen you know, Schwartz it's a funny thing. I mean, life life takes us to places that we never imagined. So this is a true story too. And it's not, it's not deep at all. But when I was in seventh, eighth grade, I, I, I started off in, in, in public school in Washington, DC. Yeah. Let's then, hear Let's hear the hometown hero angle. Let's go. Well, I started off in public <laughs> school in, in, in Washington, DC. I went to Noise Elementary, which is on what 10th and Franklin. I think that's, that's where it is in Northeast over by Catholic university. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, but when I got when I when I finished sixth grade there, my mother, who was far wiser than me, said, "You're going to Catholic school." And I bucked. I was like, "I don't want to go to Catholic school. I want to, you know, I want to go to, you know, the junior high, or whatever, with with all my friends." No, you're going to Catholic school. So, went to St. Anthony's over at uh, on 12th Street, where <laughs> John Thompson was the coach of the boys varsity. Right before he left, John, wait, John. You said John Thompson, as in John of, Thompson of Georgetown, of, Georgetown, of Georgetown legend. Now, I'll rest tell you that story. Rest in, in peace. Yes. So, so I got there in seventh grade. I think I was in the eighth grade. We did in at the at the grade school eighth grade. They did Godspell. Okay. And I, not knowing who I was going to be, and you know. I, ref- I I declined to audition for the play. 
And the play turned out to be so good that I ended up coming to all the rehearsals and, and, and I didn't even play bass, but the guys who were the musicians and teaching and everything, they let me just pick up the bass and sit in like I was one of the musicians so I could be part of the thing. And I was just playing wrong notes. <laughs> but I was I was just so in love with Godspell, man. And then to think that all these years later, I would be blessed to be in a production of Stephen Schwartz's, you know, right. what his arguably you could argue is his his greatest production, his greatest uh, composition. Um, when, it will be the one that lives the longest. I'm yeah, I'm you know, and and I was I was sitting there playing the bass, watching Godspell on stage, and like I said, I wasn't playing right note the first. I was just playing so I could look like I was cool and I was in the band because I wanted to be a part of this thing so bad that I was stupid enough not to audition <laughs> for it. But anyway, <laughs> so my George, my my John Thompson story, here, real quick. Yeah, so, yeah, no, I let's let's go. I'm all I'm so all in. Freshman year, so I so I, I graduated from the middle school, the, the grade school. Is saying he's a, I went to the high school, which literally was just you know they were connected. So I was a freshman, ninth grade. I was five feet, what nine maybe. I weighed a hundred and five pounds, dripping wet, and at St. Anthony's at that time, especially if you wanted to be anybody, especially if you wanted to be able to get the girls, you had to play basketball. I was I was a really good base, baseball player, but you had to oh, play what basketball. Posi what position were you on the diamond? Oh, I was third base, shortstop, second base, you know. Hot, hot corner. Yeah, but my arm was wonky, so. <laughs> but did you play but, hoops too? Huh? Well, hoops, no, hoops. man, I, the, the, here's the story. So I, I, like all the other guys, I tried out for the basketball team and i'm figuring okay i'm going in with the mindset i'm going to try out for jv day of the tryouts john thompson had just left he had just left the year before they went 26 and one they had like two all mets two or three all mets on the team Oof. and they went 26 and one and they were returning something like seven guys eight guys from that team six or seven of whom were six six and up okay wow. and who comes in to conduct the audition? Because he had just gone to Georgetown. It was his first year at Georgetown. But John Thompson came in to con I said the audition to conduct the trial. He came in to conduct the trials for for the for the basketball team that year. So he said, "All right, everybody at the gym." He said, "Everybody lined up against the far walls." We all lined up against the far wall. He's got this towel, that famous towel that he had draped over his shoulder. <laughs> yeah. he, had, he had a towel draped over his shoulder. He had a, a clipboard in his hand. He said, okay, he wasn't even looking at it. He was looking at the clipboard. He said, okay, everybody here who's trying out for JV, take one step forward. Well, I'm looking at these dudes who are 6'6", 6'10", 6'9". I'm thinking 26 and 1. My only shot is to try out for JV. So me and three other dudes, we took one step forward. John Thompson didn't even look up. He said, okay, all four of you gentlemen are cut. Anyone not good enough to make my varsity is not good enough to make my JV. <laughs> and we were cut. And I begged him. I said, Coach, please. And, the, you know, the second day of trials was, was, was the next day. I said, Coach, please let me come back. Just let me come back. I, 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 I'd like to just show you what I got. So he said, okay, young man, you can come back. So the next day we came back. And in John Thompson practice, you can never lower your arms below like, you know, shoulder level. Your arms have to always be up in a defensive position. So, and all he did that day was run scrimmages. So we just ran scrimmages and scrimmages. And I I got to say, truthfully, this is all true. I had took five shots. I made all five of my shots. I, was, I made shots over catch with 6'7", a couple Whoa. over here with 6'10". 
And then when he take that Patrick Ewing and well, Allen Iverson at the end of the at the end of the trials when he sat us all down, we were all on the floor. We were gassed. We were just sitting on the floor, just just puddles of sweat on the floor. And he wrote, he he called out the following names that I called didn't did not make the team. You you are you are cut. And I was the number three name that he called. So I still didn't make it. But that's my John Thompson story. I got to I got to trial for Coach John Thompson, man. Wow. And you perf- and you went five for five from the field. <laughs> I did that day. That's the only day in my life I've ever done that. <laughs> <laughs> and he still got cut. What the hell? What the- no, I, no, no. I you know knew, what? I Things knew. happen for a reason because you might I not knew. have had this great acting career if you made that. You never well, know. I knew. I knew. I, I knew that I was I had no no shot. I, I wouldn't. Basketball was not my thing. I loved it. And I I had an average street game on a good day. I had a slightly above average street game, but that was it. I, I had no business being on the court with those cats. But it was just the, the beauty of being able to be there at a time when that program was so prolific. And John Thompson was the reason, and he came back, and I got to be in his in his space for a minute. That was so cool. That is so cool, and a story you'll be able to tell forever. That's amazing. That's amazing. I'm Bradley Trainer, and I'm Don McLean. We have a podcast called Blinded by the Item. A blind item is gossip about a celebrity with their name left out. It's a guessing game, and you can play along. The item might be like this: A list star carries a Birkin bag worth more than the average person's house to the gym to work out. Pretty sure that's J-Lo. And P.S. The person behind all of this is Chris Jenner, LLC. We drop a new episode every weekday so the fun never ends. Blinded by the Item. Listen wherever you get podcasts and watch us on the Blinded by the Item YouTube channel. Tell me a little bit about, you know, when, when, you, didn't, when you didn't become a basketball player. <laughs> uh, tell me about some of the, the Hollywood work you've done. I know you've written some scripts for some, well, some directors um, you might have heard of. When I when I left when I graduated when I graduated school in DC I I got accepted to Juilliard and um, I was there I got to Juilliard right after they had just you ready for this yeah they had just kicked out Robin Williams Christopher Reeve and John John Hurt what do you mean kicked out they were well, back then they don't do it anymore back then. At Juilliard, if they didn't feel you measured up to what they were setting their standards for, they wow. they cut they they kicked you out. If you got if you got a bad critique in a class, if you got <laughs> you were late for a couple classes or whatever, or if they just felt like your acting your acting uh, style, your acting talents were not progressing the way they wanted, at the end of the year, they they would cut they would cut you. <laughs> Um, Sorry, Robin I, Williams. We don't think you have a future. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, and and the thing was. They told us these are three three names of people that you should not aspire to be. And they said Robin Williams, Christopher Reeve, and John Hurt. That's an Academy Award winner, an Academy Award nominee, and Superman. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, that's who we were not supposed to aspire to. And I was like, what? And and <laughs> and, and uh I mean the first day at Juilliard, my class was accepted 30 students. After the first day, kid you not, we were down to 25. Three people had been asked to leave after the first day. Two others quit on their own volition. So that that was my and and, and Kelsey Grammer was a fourth year student when I was there. Uh, the great Keith David was ahead of me, who you know does the narration for uh, Ken Burns's. I mean, jazz. oh, he's a legend, man. That... And yeah, yeah, this Keith, great. So I was there with you know incredible talent. So from there, you know, I I once I I did that, and then I ended up. Uh, my first Broadway production, I came back to New York, and my first Broadway Broadway production was the original production of A Few Good Men with Aaron Sorkin. 
Wow. And uh, what role did you play? Well, I started off as just one of the the drill sergeants, but then I took over the one of the main roles of Lance Corporal Harold W. Dawson, the dudes who were being court-martialed for yeah, yeah. committing the code red. Mm-hmm. And um, and I was there with, you know, Stephen Lang and Tom Hulse. And I mean, Steve, hmm. Tom Hulse had just been Academy Award nominated for Amadeus. Steve Lang, now have you, if you, you may not remember his name, but Steve Lang was the evil colonel in Avatar. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. So I mean, they're there with these incredible, and then and you know who was just uh, uh, just a a a a private soldier. He came in halfway through the run. J.K. Simmons, man. Oh my God, yeah. another future Oscar winner. Yeah, exactly. And he's just standing there parade rest the whole time. So I was there <laughs> with a great bunch of guys, and that's when when I was doing that, I sat on the stairwell in between my entrances, and I had a notepad, and I just started jotting down some ideas. And every morning I would get up at five o'clock. I would go into a little, this little walk-in closet we had because I had just had, we just had my first child and I didn't want to disturb them. So I went to a little walk-in closet at five o'clock every morning and I would write until it was almost time for me to go to the theater for my half hour call. And by the end of eight weeks in the closet with this thing that I was writing, I ended up having a script called Pork Pie that, uh, Ron Perlman, who had come into the show, the great wow. Ron Perlman had come into the show. He'd taken over the role for Steve Lang. And he was with William Morris at the time. And he heard that I was right. He said, Mike, let me see what you're writing. And so I said, okay. I, I was nervous, but I, I let him see the script. He said, he called me, he called me back. He, saw, he called me back. He saw me the next day or two days later at the theater. He said, look, man, I just read this. Would you mind if I walked this into William Morris? I said, nah, please go ahead. And like he walked it in like the next day and two days later, an agent called me and said, can you get over here immediately? I want to ha- I want to meet you. And that was the start of my writing career. And it's called I pork up, pie, uh, pork pie, pork a piece pie. Called, a piece called pork pie. Pork pie meaning the pork pie hat that jazz musicians wear. Oh, gotcha. Okay, yeah. Like the great Lester Young has the most famous pork pie of all time. His like wow. big, you know. So it's it's a it's a jazz fable, pork pie. And it got it. It got selected to Sundance. <laughs> wow! Wait, so you actually made the movie and it got into Sundance? No, no it got selected to Sundance in, in the writers in the writers lab. Gotcha. And, uh, and but because of that, that's why Harry Harry Belafonte ended up hiring me. Uh, then I got hired to write this holiday cla- movie classic called Hallelujah for American Playhouse, and starred Dennis Haysbert, Keith David, and uh, Felicia Rashad. And it was, and it, that ended up being the second highest rated uh, film they ever had at that time slot. I'm something may have beaten it now, but that was back in what '93. That was oh, movie, okay. That was my first film, and James Earl Jones was in it. Wow. Uh, and uh, because of that, Harry Belafonte hired me to do the thing for him. And then next thing I know, I had just gotten uh, cast in 25th Hour with Spike Lee. Mm-hmm. So was doing 25th Hour Spike. He and I had the same literary agent at the time, uh, Leo Rosenberg, uh, who I loved. And uh, she put us in a meeting a room together. She wanted to see if we could work something out where we could do something. And so <laughs> so I'm sitting in, a, in, in the room with Spike and Spike's sitting at his desk. And I'm, I'm sitting on a little hassock, which means I was like three feet below him. <laughs> and it was that classic, you know, power thing. And I'm looking up at him and I had written a script called Talk to Me, which ended up being done by Focus Features. It starred Don Cheadle, Chiwetel Ejiofor, 
to Roger P. Henson and, and Martin Sheen. And Directed by the great Casey, Cassie Casey Lemons. Lemons. Yeah. And, you know, quintessential DC story. And that's actually the story of my father. Um, oh, really? It, well, yeah. Dewey Hughes, the True and Tell Edge character, is my father. So if you know Kathy Hughes and Radio One and TV One, that's my family. Wow. So, um, so uh, I ended up being the writer on this film, and Spike got a hold of the script and he really wanted to do talk to me but the producers had an, another director in mind and they they didn't want to give it to spike and so i said spike you know i can't i can't give you that one i mean i'd love to i wanted to give it to him but i said i, I can't give you that one. he said okay if I, well, if I can't have that one this is what i'm interested in and i said what and this is pretty much verbatim what spike said to me he said Lesbians who want to become mothers are using turkey bases to get pregnant. <laughs> that and so that was his. He that, threw that out. That was it. Something. That was it. And I sat there on this little hassock, and my mouth hit the floor literally. <laughs> and then, because I had, I had never heard of this. Okay, I'd never heard of that. Right. And I said to my. Thankfully, my inner brain said, "Janae." Close your mouth. Spike Lee just opened the door for you to write a movie for him. Get it together, man. Yeah, so exactly. I quickly, I quickly closed my mouth and I said, and then he said, he said after that, he said, I don't know what the story is, but that's, but I'm inter interested in that. And so I quickly said, okay, give me three days and I'll give you your story. And so <laughs> while we were filming 25th hour, uh, I was, you know, at night I'd be working on this, just putting together this, this treatment, right? And so we go on set and he called cut after a scene and I say, Spike, come here, come here. And I said, this is what I got. So I whispered, blah, 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 this blah, 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 blah happens, blah, blah. And then I stopped and he said, and I didn't think he was going to like any of this stuff. And he said, oh, that's, man, I like that. Cool. Give me some more. I said, I don't have any more. Wait till tomorrow. So I went back the next night, typed it up on set the next day, cut, Spike, <laughs> come here. Blah, 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 blah. Oh man, that's fantastic. Give, give me some more. I don't have, wait, give me, give me to tomorrow. Next day, same thing. On set, cut. Spike, come here. Blah, 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 blah. He said, give me some more. That's great. I said, I, that's it. That's all I got. He said, cool. Write the treatment. I said, you're kidding me. <laughs> so I wrote out the treatment and I wrote this 15, you know, like, like the, the classic treatment story is Joe Esterhouse who did uh, Showgirls and Basic Instinct. Uh, when he did Basic Instinct, he he got the deal of like what a four picture deal or something. I may be some, somewhat inaccurate, but basically he got a four picture deal off of a two paragraph treatment. Just two paragraphs. Wow. He got a four picture deal for like millions of dollars. I wrote Spike a 15 page treatment. For this film and we were shooting in Brooklyn and when I brought the treatment to set that day he called cut he called an early lunch he said cut we're going to lunch and we said he said Mike come with me so we sat out on the sidewalk in Brooklyn and he made me sit next to him I'm talking about agonizing while Spike sat there and read word for word 15 pages of my treatment I, I had to turn and face away from him because I could hear the pages turn. It was just, I was just like, oh, he's going to hate this. Is, is, this was stupid. <laughs> what was I thinking? And then when he finished, he turns to me and said, cool. Write the script. <laughs> Write the script. Wow. I, I was like, what? 
<laughs> he said, no, seriously, write the script. And we wrapped on 25th hour, I think it was like around September 23rd, something like that. We we wrapped on a on a on a scene uh in Central Park. And um and I delivered the script to him. I started the script then and I delivered the script to him the day before Thanksgiving in his office. And Spike, when I gave him this the script, Spike rubbed his hands together like you like you do when you say, Ooh, this is good. You know, yeah. He's and excited. Together, he, he said, Okay, cool. Now I got something to do tomorrow besides watch football. And he read the script. And a year later, we were finished principal photography on this movie. There's I you people in general public won't understand the significance of that. I'm telling you right now, that does not happen in Hollywood. That does not happen in, in the entertainment industry. Spike Lee's the only director I know who could fast track and get something done with that, with that rapidity, wow. uh, that expediency. We were done principal photography a year later. I've been, I've got a couple projects now, this TV series that I'm selling that I've been on for, for six years. Okay. Do you want to do you want to tease any of us? You know uh, what, no, what you got coming up? No, I'm out? not going to tease the TV series because we're close. We're we're close to got getting it. this thing sold, and it's and it's going to be a, a big big hit. I'll just say that. Um, but you know, we just I, I don't want to jinx that. I'm just I'm just saying I I know that, but I've been on this thing for a long time. Pork pie, my film my my, my screenplay pork pie. I wrote that back in 1990. It got close to being made three times, and we're and it's going to get made. But I mean, we're talking, we're talking, what, 30 years now? Yeah, that's it takes okay. the time it takes sometimes. You know, I mean, the great David Brown, a producer David Brown, who was who was married to Helen Gurley Brown, who was, you know, the, the, the head of Cosmopolitan magazine. But he was the producer on Jaws, producer on A Few Good Men. So when 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 he was producing A Few, Few Good Men, he got he also got wind of the script that I was writing for Pie. And he said, Michael, I'd like to read it. So I gave it to him. And then next thing I know, David Brown called me over to he and her, Helen Gurley Brown's home, which was over on what Central Park West or whatever, I forgot where it was. And I'm sitting in the foyer of his home on this on this sofa or whatever out there. And he comes out with my script and he sits down with me and he says how much he loved the script. And one of the reasons he identified with it so much was because it was a story about a young man who grew up without a father and David Brown, that was his story too. And then David Brown told me, he said, this is what, this is what you need to understand. In this industry, especially from from a cinematic standpoint, uh, it's easier to these are pretty much his words verbatim. It's easier to get the space shuttle to the moon than it is to get a movie deal done. <laughs> Seriously, order, because in order to get a movie deal done, every star in the universe has to align perfectly, and if one of those stars falls out of alignment, your entire deal is done. Yep. And I had to, I've had to hold on to that with regards to pork pie. Because I know it's going to get done. It's just that the stars have aligned a few times, but one has always fallen out of place, and that's just the nature of this game. And you gotta, you gotta have. I tell all all young artists who come to me and ask me, you know, what do I need to do to get in this business? I say, well, first thing you need to do is go to the store, buy a, 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 a rhino suit, put it on, and just get ready to, you know, endure all the no's that you're going to endure. <laughs> that's what this game is. The, in, the entertainment industry's mantra every day that they wake up is no. That's what they have to say. They have to say no because they get 100,000 submissions on this, 50,000 <laughs> submissions on that a year, and they're only allowed to green light eight. 
and they know and they know that if they if they green light a project that ends up being a big flop, they're going to lose their comfy office in the corner with the high back leather chair, and they don't want to do right. that. Right. I mean, do you, do, do, does the public know that the the movie Ghost was rejected by every studio in Hollywood? Oh yeah, and people were passing on the Matrix. There's so many stories of that, you know. Yeah, yeah exactly. So you just have to you just have to be able to endure the storm. Keep asking yourself, how bad do you want it? And if you want it bad enough, you get up the next day and you continue to climb the mountain. That's basically, that's basically what it is, you know. Yeah, yeah. That that is such such great advice, and everyone needs to listen to that. Any young listeners out there in the DC area that are <laughs> writing some screenplays, uh, take that advice, please, keep, and keep at it. Um, man, you're clear. He's. I thought we were just gonna hop on. You know, we'll talk wicked a little bit, but this turned into an amazing one of my favorite conversations. This was fa freaking fantastic. Oh, it's, it's it's a pleasure to talk to you. I'm look. I'm excited to come home. I haven't. You know, I haven't. I haven't worked in DC uh since i think 2008 i haven't been at the kennedy center since a few good men in in 1990 oh okay? wow so it's it's a, it's a it's a pleasure to be able to come home see some family uh you know do what i do back at home i mean you know i i, I haven't been, last time i was there i was at, at arena stage and that was i think two, 2008 and that's when they were in, in renovations and they we were actually working out of a theater at the pentagon <laughs> <laughs> what was the show uh, the show was, oh my God, Re Resurrection. It okay. was uh, supposed to be, it was destined to be the male equivalent to For Colored Girls Who Considered Suicide When the Rainbow Is Enough. It was the male version and it almost made it into New York. But you know, again, the industry came in and tripped it up at the last minute. It was a wonderful piece about, you know, the male experience and in, in urban America on all levels from the cat who's just, the every man to the guy who's, you know, making high six figures as, as, as a high powered attorney, the guy who's got the bodega store in the corner. It was just, it was just this incredible, incredible piece of work. Uh, and, you know, the great Oz Scott who directed the original uh, for colored girls was our director. And we thought, we thought we were going to make it in and we, we, it got vetoed at the last, last second for us to come into New York. But it's a wonderful production. And that's the last time I've, I've been in, in DC actually as, as working was, was with that with that show. Wow. Well, we're excited to have you back home then. And, uh, uh, you know, the spirit of John Thompson will be in the audience, hopefully down here. Uh, yeah, you're, yeah. You've you've lived such uh, an amazing life since growing up in, in D.C., uh, all the Broadway and Hollywood and even even a little basketball legend there in this interview. <laughs> well, I'm, um, I, got to, I got to work with another D.C. native uh, on a thing that's about to start airing on December 22nd on Peacock, uh, the the best man. Uh, oh yeah, movie. Uh, they're making a limited series called Final Chapters. Final Chapters, yeah. And so I got to work all my stuff. I got to work with Regina Hall, and she's a DC girl too. And when we found that out, we we just had a a, a real real heavy bond together. I loved working with her. She's a great lady, and she's another Catholic school girl too. So <laughs> we had that experience to talk about. And um, so that's that's what other than Wicked, that's what I've got I've got coming out. And in the meantime, man, I'm I'm getting close to finishing my first fictional novel. I'm excited about it. And that's what I've been doing during the days while I'm doing the show here. I'm Are we allowed to say what that's about or at least the genre? Uh, no, I'll, I will say this. Here, here's what I will say. Um, and this is 
what I honestly believe. I'm not just saying this because it sounds good. Sure. Uh, when you when you saw if if you saw the the, the Motown special uh, that they did on Showtime or whatever it was, and smoke smoke smoke. I say smoke. Smokey Robinson was talking about at one point Marvin Marvin Gaye was in the studio working on his new album. So Smoke said he went he went by to see his buddy to see how it was going. So he, he walked in the studio and he said Marvin. How, 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 how's the recording coming? He said, Marvin turned turned to him and, and just had this look on his face and just shook his head and said, Smoke, God's writing this album. <laughs> and he believed The it. album that he talk, was talking about turned out to be What's Going On. Wow. Arguably the greatest album ever created. Yeah. I'm telling you right now, that's all I'm saying is that I don't know until I get to the end how it's going to hold up, but I'm telling you right now, God's writing this book. Wow, that's a teaser right there. So I'm ex I'm excited. I feel blessed to be given these words and given the story, the characters, uh, and I'm I'm confident that it's going to be a powerful piece of work. Whether 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 it 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 makes the mainstream or not, that remains to be seen. But I'm going to do everything in my power to see this gets a shot. But I know that I got magic going on that, and and I don't and I don't ever uh, front on that. I don't I don't tell you that I was great when I wasn't great. Uh, I, I, if I had a bad day, I'm gonna tell you I had a bad day. I'm telling you right now that I got some magic going on here. I'm really I'm really excited about that. Oh, wow. Well, I can't wait. I mean, we should definitely, you know, maybe we could set up a follow up interview or something. Um, I would love to we'll to find it's, out it's more my, about it. Yeah, we'll see. It's, it's my first venture into the novel format. I wrote I wrote one book that was published. Uh, they, they must not know who I think I am, which was an inspirational stories about being in, in the entertainment industry for people who are you know always thinking about quitting but right. this is my first fictional novel and I was always intimidated by the format of you know right novels. Yeah. and I figured you know when the pandemic hit someone posted and I don't even know who it was and I, I'm assuming that it was accurate they posted something that evidently Denzel said and I had done uh the Broadway production of Fences with him and Viola. I was one of the understudies in that production. Wow. So they posted this thing that Denzel said when the pandemic is here. So, so he said something to the effect, the pandemic is here, y'all. So you ain't got nowhere to go. Now's the time to do that thing you always said you were going to do. Write that novel, build that, whatever. Exactly. Work. And I thought to myself, you know, he's right. And I'd had this idea and I jotted down, you know, bits and pieces of the thing for like a year and a half before that. I had just not pulled the trigger to truly sit down and start writing it. But when I saw that post that Denzel was, was attributed to Denzel, I said, you know what? Yeah, I might as well. And so I started right at the beginning of the pandemic and, uh, <laughs> and I'm almost finished now. So that's what going on three years. Yeah. I've always wondered why it takes, cause you know, when you write a, a, a screenplay, you know, this, when you write a screenplay, yeah. especially if you're on deadline, you're writing it within eight weeks, 10 weeks tops. Yeah, you know, 12 weeks top to get that draft out. Yeah, knock so, it out. And I've always wondered why it takes novelists. So, you know, what coach, he was talking about, it took him 10 years to write the, the, his his latest book. And I was like, why would it take 10 years? To, but I, I totally understand now because life gets in the way. Yeah. And a novel requires a different type of attention and life gets in the way. <laughs> yeah. You know, and so... This thing that I started, and I'm I'm always a writer that makes his deadlines when it comes to my my screenplays. Sure. But this is a this is a three year odyssey so far. So, but wow. magic is happening. 
Magical. I'm glad. I think the pandemic's gonna. Well, a, I can't wait to read it and hear more about it. But the, I think the pandemic's it's gonna separate the, you know, who who is just passing time and who actually used this to do what Denzel said. You know, who used the time to actually put pen to paper and, and hunker down and do it? Because like you're saying, it does take time. <laughs> it does take time, you know. And and Sonny Rollins said it, man. What's the point of living a hundred years if you're not gonna do anything with it? So I'm trying. I, to, yeah, exactly. I'm trying to do something with it, you know. And then after that, then you gotta play the game, and and the game keeps changing. That's that's the 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 quandary that I've been in. Yeah. Now, especially with the TV series, because we have. I mean, I've got the, the producers that produce folk uh, talk to me are, are producing are my producing partners on the TV series. So. I'm 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 locked and loaded. The script has already received incredible uh, reviews. Our pitch was was received incredible. We and we've only done like three or four pitches, so we we shut it down because what has happened is in the industry you cannot get, and you probably you probably know this, but you cannot get a deal done unless you have your showrunner locked in. Right. And we we have yet to lock. We we thought we had a showrunner locked in twice, and we lost them both. Uh, one, the last one we just lost, we lost her because she really wanted to do it, but she, the show that she just finished doing with Kerry Washington is getting picked up for the second season. So she, she just said, Michael, I can't, I can't hang you guys up. You know, I'm going to be tired. Yeah. So, okay. And this other cat, uh, Cheo, um, who's one of the top showrunners in the game, he had just ended his deal with Netflix and he was trying to figure out where he was going to land. Well, where he landed was at apple tv of course apple when they gave him the deal they want him to do their stuff for the foreseeable future so he said mike it's going to take at least two maybe three years before i can bring you in i still want to do this but you know we just couldn't wait that long so that's that's just where we are it's, we're going to get it done we just gotta you just gotta lock down your showrunner but the showrunners are the premium asset in all the television and there's only so many of them to go around and most of them are you know locked in on multiple shows at, at once so it's you know it's a slog and the stars aligning like you said earlier yeah you just gotta wait yeah and so we're we're pretty confident that 2023 we're gonna pull the trigger we're gonna get it sold and when we get it sold this one's gonna be one of the best shows on all in all the one of the best hour dramas in all the television is that the script is that the pilot is that good what's it called or you're not allowed to tell me what it's called I, I'm just, you know, I'm not going to say anything. You don't have to. You don't have to. No, yeah, no. But this but, is different from the novel. You're also doing the novel. Oh, no, this is totally, no, no. The novel is the novel. The TV series is the TV series. Yeah. And, you know, um, and if I get both of those done and they become hits, maybe I'm I'm walking away into the sun buying a house in Costa Rica, man. <laughs> <laughs> you, that, that's something to hang your career on right there. You, you And kidding. you... I believe you when you say it's magic or the Marvin Gaye, you know, God's writing this one or whatever the analogy. I, I believe it. I can feel I can hear it in your voice. Dude, when Smoke said that and he and he said what Marvin said and you found out that the album he was talking about was what's going on. It sent chills down my spine <laughs> because because, you know, you know, when you got something special going on and I'm always everything that I do is connected to the universe and to the creator. So um I feel really confident that, matter of fact, I, everything I've ever done, I, you know, I've been whispered in my ear by an angel, man, to say, hey, put this down on the page. Some stuff I put down on the page, man, I've had to push back from the computer because I'm looking, I'm like, who wrote that? That 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 passage right there is, is beyond me. 
I I believe it. I think people tap into into that higher power higher power to get something. Yeah, man. They have to. There's no explanation. Michael Jackson said that stuff, and when he said it, we thought he was nuts. I totally get it now. And I met Michael. Michael and I are four four days apart. I'm four days older than Mike. I met Michael when we were both 18 years old. Wow. Met him at a pre preview, not the premiere, but the preview of the Wiz at the Santa Rama Dome in L.A. And um, speaking of wicked, that'll bring us full circle. Right, exactly. And and after the he came in with 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 Quincy to see the preview, and at the end of the preview, he was just standing in the lobby by himself, with of course with his two bodyguards. But he, I'm still I'm I'm looking over them. Said that's Michael Jackson, and, and my friends from school, he was saying you can't go over there. I said that's my I'm going over. I'm going to talk to Michael Jackson. So I walked over. And the bodyguards converged. He said, Michael said, no, 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 no. They don't come on. <laughs> and, uh, and we ended up talking and we ended up hitting it off. And we got along so well. He asked me to come, why don't you come on back to the house? And I'm telling you, it was just, it was just a straight friendship thing. The dude was so lonely. At that point in his life, he was already in this fishbowl and he was just looking for a friend. And we we clicked. And I had to pass because I didn't have a car in LA at that time. And my school was 45 minutes up the highway. And my ride was over across across the lobby and over there waiting to go. So I had I had the best. But anyway, Michael said later in his life, not too long before he passed, when he was going through all this stuff, and one of the interviewers asked him, why, why are you not sleeping? And Michael said, and I think this is accurate. I mean, if it's not, then I'll stand corrected and forgive me for, for spreading something that wasn't true. But I think it's accurate. Michael said, Oh no, I don't I I don't sleep because I, I don't want to miss the next idea for the next hit song. And if I'm afraid if I go to sleep, God's gonna give the next hit song to Prince. Wow. And at the time and I tragic remember, now in hindsight. Yeah, exactly. And at the time sleep. people thought that oh he's crazy, he's lost his mind. I totally get it. You do what he was saying was you gotta stay connected to the universe because the ideas are gonna come. And if you're not open to receiving them, they are going to go to someone else. And that's why you, a lot of times you'll see the same ideas. You know, sometimes you'll see the same ideas pop up in like three or four different places at the same time. And it's, exactly it's, those people weren't in a room together. They tapped into whatever that divine current was at the time. And it came down and it's who's going to harness it and write it first. <laughs> exactly, man. I mean, exactly. And that's I mean, Gloria Naylor, the great Gloria Naylor, who wrote Women of Brewster Place and everything. I, I did one of her plays and we were riding back from rehearsal or whatever. And I, and I had a I was telling her about a. a a, a script that I was working on at that time. And it kind of matched something that she was working on. And she just simply said to me, Mike, you know, ideas, they're, they're in the universe. We're not the only ones that have them. You know, multiple people have a similar idea. That's why projects can be similar to the next project over the next project over. That's, you know, and, and it was accurate and it was true. And, and I, and I didn't get afraid of the fact that, Oh my God, I'm writing something that, that's similar to what she was writing. And she was just saying, it, all of us who are artists, the, those of us who are truly connected to the universe, yeah, we're going to tap into the same rhythm at time, and we're going to end up coming up with, with with material that is similar in scope. You know, don't don't be afraid of it. Just write yours, and I'll write mine, and we'll see which one lands. You know, it's cool. Exactly, exactly. Well, I, it's been fa thanks for tapping into uh, you know my same wavelength for this hour and change or whatever we've been doing it. 
Um, it's, been a, pleasure, man. it's been great. I mean, literally could talk to you all day about this stuff. I grew up with WTOP, brother. So, you know, oh, this, yeah? is, this is like coming home, man. You know, oh, that's great. Well, thank you so much. This is this was awesome. And best of luck with the, the series and the novel and everything. But but first and foremost, with with Wicked, we'll want to invite I hope everyone. I hope you, hope you and your family can come see us while we're in town, man. Definitely. It's at the Kennedy Center, December 8th through January 22nd. It's Wicked. Don't miss it. I appreciate it. All right, brother. Appreciate you too, man. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Our theme music is Scott Buckley's Clarion. Remember to give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time. Explain your DNA on, on 10 cases, man. You're inside the police interrogation room with the alleged Potomac River rapist. I'm not guilty on any of this stuff. So calm, so reasonable. Could this be the man who terrorized women for nine years before murdering a brilliant scientist two decades ago? Experience one of the most fascinating true crime podcasts available. Join crime reporter Paul Wagner for Unknown Subject, season three of WTOP's American Nightmare series. Search American Nightmare Podcast on all podcast platforms. I wanted to take a second to tell you about an app I really enjoy. Living in the D.C. area is great, and Podcast D.C. gathers all of the local shows that I like all in one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast D.C. is the new local app with hundreds of D.C. area podcasts to choose from. I can earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts I love instantly. Available in the App Store or in Google Play, listen local with Podcast D.C.